Welcome to episode six of Hidden in Plain Sight, the HIPS podcast. I'm Julian Ng, author of Kit the Musical, your host for the series. And with me, sharing his expertise is Peter Hodges, director, dramatist, and author of Marlowe's Complaint, the book that investigates the trail of clues which for over 400 years has been hidden in plain sight. Peter, welcome back to episode six, The Rival Poet. Thank you, Julian. If you are new to us, we are investigating the possibility that the Elizabethan dramatist Christopher Marlowe did not die in 1593, as is alleged in most histories, but rather that he lived long after that, continuing his career as an intelligence operative for the English crown and as a playwright for the London stage. Peter, in our last episode, we discussed what you called a dangerous letter written by Christopher Marlowe in 1598 to his patron, Sir Thomas Walsingham. I think this is a very interesting theory, but as you know, I had already deduced that this supposed letter is really a group of sonnets, numbers 78 to 92 to be precise, published as Shakespeare's sonnets in 1609. Although they were individually undated, the idea that a group of them could be bundled together as a coded letter is really completely new to me, and I suspect to many of our listeners. Moreover, since the sonnets do not name any individual persons, it is very difficult to say to whom they were written, never mind about who or what. One clue we do have is that this group of sonnets deals with a similar subject, and because of that, they are known among scholars as the rival poet sonnets because they appear to complain to the author's patron that he is suddenly showing a preference to this rival. The question asked by these scholars is, who is this supposed rival? You say he is a poet named George Chapman. Now, I did a little research between episodes, and I've read that Edmund Spencer, a very famous poet from that period, has also been suspected of being this rival. In fact, many scholars prefer Spencer because he's acknowledged to be one of the greatest poets of that age, and his fairy queen is highly influential even to this day. I would like to suggest, therefore, that you explain to our listeners how it is that you believe George Chapman is the stronger candidate for this role of the author's rival. Okay. Uh, the way I would like to approach this is by identifying specific parts of the letter, the sonnet sequence, that describe the unique characteristics of this rival. In order to do this, we're going to have to do a dive into the actual sonnets. So I'm going to ask you to forgive me because I'm going to be reading from those sonnets. I'm going to be quoting them, and then we're going to do a little on-the-spot analysis. 
So bear with me, I'll get you there. As I said in our last episode, there are at least five unique characteristics of this rival that are described in the letter. I believe that all five of these characteristics must be satisfied by any supposed candidate, and he can't or she can't match four or three out of five. They have to match all five because we have to assume a priori that the author knew who he was or she was talking about and that he or she would only have mentioned those characteristics that applied specifically to the person he or she was complaining about. Does that make sense? Of course. And according to what I have read, many scholars think that Spencer meets those criteria. Well, he meets some of them. For instance, here, here we go. In one part of Marlowe's letter, the sonnet sequence, sonnet 85, lines 5 through 7, he says, I think good thoughts, while others write good words, and like unlettered clerk, cry amen to every hymn that able spirit affords in polished form of well-refined pen. Okay, both Chapman and Spencer published poems that they called hymns. Chapman published his first poem called The Shadow of Night in 1594, which was divided into two parts, both of which he called hymns. Part one was Hymnus and Noctum, meaning Hymn Tonight, and the second part was called Hymnus and Cynthium, meaning Hymn to Cynthia. That's the whole poem, two hymns. Then in 1595, he published Ovid's Banquet of Sense, which included a section titled The Song of Corinna, and it describes how Ovid fell in love with her when she sung the song. And you know, Marlowe's a big Ovid fan. Yes, but Spencer wrote hymns. He published a quarto titled Four Hymns in 1598, so that's your first description matched. I agree. Spencer and Chapman both match that part of the description. The next description is the use of nautical terms or nautical themes comparing poetry with sailing. Now, this appears in lines one and two of Sonnet 86 in the letter. And these lines say, Was it the full proud sail of his great verse, bound for the prize of all too precious you? So this opens up the possibility that the poet Marlowe is talking about has written something important about sailing or some poem on that theme. It turns out that George Chapman did exactly that in 1598. He published the first part of his translation of Homer's Iliad. This is the first English translation of that epic poem, and even today it is considered a milestone in English poetry. The Iliad, as you will recall, is the story of the siege of Troy, when the Greeks 
sailed across the Aegean Sea to get revenge on the Trojans for kidnapping Helen. When Marlowe says, bound for the prize of all too precious you, he's comparing his protector with Helen. So it's not just a nautical reference, it's mythical and personal too. I'm, but I'm not giving up on Spencer just yet. He uses nautical themes too, does he not? There must have been other people at that time who also wrote poems about sailing. I mean, it's not that unusual a subject. No, actually, Spencer does not use nautical themes. The scholars who advocate that part of the case claim that the proud sail of his great verse should be read metaphorically. My answer to that is that if Marlowe or whoever wanted to identify Spencer as the rival, all he would have had to do would be to mention fairies or queens, but he doesn't. There are actually scholars who claim that there must be some missing cantos that meet that description, but seriously, everybody has missing poems, don't they? Chapman has a major translation of a major poem, and he doesn't need a metaphor, and he doesn't need to go looking in the lost and found. Okay, so far you've given us two parts of the description. You said there were five. What's the next one? Actually, it's the first thing the author says. Listen to this. First lines in the letter, so oft have I invoked thee for my muse and found such fair assistance in my verse as every alien pen hath got my use and under thee their poesy disperse. This is Sonnet 78, lines one through four. Now notice he's not saying other poets are putting their name on his poetry. That would be plagiarism. He's saying they are publishing their poetry under his name. And not only that, he's saying that his patron, the person he's writing to, is dispersing it. He's distributing it. That's a very specific accusation. It's actually two clues in one because the rival is slapping Marlowe's name on his poetry, clue number one, and that Marlowe's patron published it, clue number two, or clues number three and four, depending upon how you want to count them. So it's not plagiarism. It's not publishing Marlowe's work under another name. It's the opposite of that. That doesn't happen very often. That's not ghostwriting. It's ghost titling. And it happens to be something that Chapman did when he published his version of Hero and Leander using Marlowe's original combined with additional Chapman text in 1598. The title page actually said it was begun by Christopher Marlowe and finished by George Chapman. And on the next page, he writes a note of thanks to Sir Thomas for his support of the completed poem. So now both new clues are satisfied, which makes four identifiers all matching George Chapman. And that leads to clue number five, because both of these authors 
the rival, and the author of the letter are competing for the same patron. That's the whole point. Chapman and Marlowe could both call Sir Thomas Walsingham their patron. Spencer never called Sir Thomas Walsingham his patron. And if you want to talk about Shakespeare, for example, his patron was supposedly the Earl of Southampton, not Sir Thomas Walsingham. And Spencer never had patronage from the Earl of Southampton either. So that's five identifiers, all satisfied by Chapman. <laughs> well, you are very good. But that last one is a bit shaky, isn't it? I mean, Marlowe was supposedly dead when this letter, as you call it, was written. Chapman didn't publish anything until 1594, well after the incident at Datford. I'll give you that. But the letter identifies only those poems that Chapman had written as of 1598. That makes for a very specific group, which also has to be matched. You can pick any time period you like in that era, and you won't find any other poet who has written just such a set of poems. As I say, if Marlowe had wanted to mention Fairy Queen or something like it, that would have been very clear. But he mentions only those poetic themes that apply to Chapman. Spencer doesn't really match up. Actually, if I'm honest, I'm not surprised. If the rival poet really was Spencer, I doubt there would be any controversy over it. Some people think he ought to be the rival because he was such a great poet. And I agree that he was. But I also agree that it's not really about how good the poet was. It's the fact that he was trying to pursue the same patron as the author of your dangerous letter. By the way, you know, I'm not the only person claiming that Chapman is this person being identified in Marlowe's letter. A lot of literary scholars, uh, scholars of Elizabethan literature, have noticed these same clues and come to the same conclusion. In fact, William Mento wrote an essay about this in 1874. He pointed out that the line, the proud full sail of his great verse, corresponded with almost to literal exactness, I'm quoting here, the Alexandrines of Chapman's Homer. <laughs> He's saying that the author is referring not only to Chapman, but also to the way Chapman writes. You could say that's a sixth identifier. That's a level of identification that no one else, no other poet matches. And that is Mento in 1874. And many others have come to the same conclusion. John Kerrigan, in his preface to the Penguin edition of the Sonnets, says the same thing. He says that Chapman is most likely the unnamed poet. Uh-uh-uh, most likely? So Kerrigan isn't actually sure. Well, he's hedging his bets. He doesn't want to declare Chapman is definitely the rival because other scholars have proposed other writers, but none of them match up with the clues we just talked about.
Okay, well, let's talk about some of these other potential rivals. I've read that Barnaby Barnes and Gervais Markham have both been proposed as alternatives to Chapman. Perhaps you should take a quick look at them. I mean, why don't they match up? So um, Barnaby Barnes wrote a poem called Parthenophil and Parthenope in 1593. It's a long poem, and it includes a lot of stuff, sonnets, madrigals, elegies, and odes. But he didn't write anything specifically nautical, and no one published their poetry under his name. Gervais Markham has an even weaker connection. He also wrote all kinds of stuff, but again, no one published their poetry under his name. And that that's more or less the breaking point for most of these alternates. I could add, they don't have Walsingham as uh, a patron, but they could have had other patrons, and heaven knows who the patron could be. But when you come down to it, if no one's publishing their poetry under Gervais Markham's name, it's not Gervais Markham. Is that it? I mean, aren't there any other candidates? Oh, what about Emilia Bassano? She's been mentioned too, right? Uh, Bassano or Lanny or her married name. She's more often thought of as the dark lady. Uh, that's the person identified in another section of the sonnets. The identification of her as a rival poet um, relies mostly on her 1611 publication of a book of poetry and on a string of coincidental references and descriptive passages and fictional work attributed to other writers. She didn't write on nautical themes, and she certainly did not publish others' poetry under her name. All the sonnets, including The Dangerous Letter, were published in 1609, so it's difficult to imagine how they could have anticipated her 1611 book of poems, unless there was some underground of shared manuscripts. I'm sure there was. I guess in those days, publication was still quite a novelty. It was difficult to do, and it was expensive. And I think a lot of poets are believed to have shared their manuscripts. But that's the kind of thing you can neither prove nor disprove in any specific instance. I don't think you can rely on that as an explanation for everything. And meanwhile, the references to Chapman are direct and they do not rely on surreptitious transmission because he is already in print. So what you're really saying is that there may be other candidates, but none of them match the clues as well as Chapman. They might match up with some of them, but they don't match up with all of them. And there are more clues than the ones I've mentioned so far, but only Chapman matches them all, each and every one not as interpolations, not as metaphors, but straight up. When Marlowe says the guy wrote hymns, Chapman calls his poems hymns. When Marlowe says he used nautical themes, Chapman translates the Iliad. When Marlowe satirizes the proud full sail of his great verse, William Minto says he's satirizing Chapman's verse. When Marlowe says this poet published his poem under my name, 
Chapman appropriates Marlowe's Hero and Leander, adds 1,200 lines to it, and publishes it under both their names. It has to be Chapman. No one else comes close. Mm, what about Ben Johnson? <laughs> he was extremely prolific. Hear me out. I'm sure you could put together a series of references for his versions of spirits and proud sales. And, and he collaborated with others so even alien pens could work. So why not Johnson? Oh, Johnson had a long career, and he wrote all kinds of poetry and plays and masks and even prose. And that's actually the problem with him. He wrote so much. If I wanted to identify Johnson, that's practically the first thing I would say about him. On the other hand, the letter mentions only a very specific group of things. And if you're trying to identify Johnson, they would not be the most recognizable things. You know, at the start of his career, Johnson specialized in city comedies with everyday characters and commonplace speech, not heroic epics with heightened language. So the young Johnson would not be open to being satirized on that score. When he, when Marlowe asks, was it the proud full sail of his great verse bound for the prize of all too precious you? We're not talking about Johnson, whose first big hit was Every Man in His Humor, which has a prologue where he criticizes that type of writing and proposes to write something in the vernacular, something opposite. If you wanted to satirize Johnson, you might complain that he turned around and started writing in heightened language later on when he wrote Sejanus. You could point to his masks and other things, but the letter doesn't do that. That's the problem with Johnson. He wrote so much, he satisfies almost any description. But isn't that the same problem with Chapman, too? He wrote a great deal as well. That's why you have to focus on the first three identifiers, the nautical themes, the hymns, and publishing under another's name. Whoever the letter is complaining about is complaining about someone who had done primarily those things and not anything else, or nothing else that stands out. So it's probably early in that person's career. And that eliminates Johnson, because Johnson wasn't writing hymns or nautical themes at the beginning of his career. He was writing city comedies. Chapman, on the other hand, that's what he wrote. Okay, <laughs> you're pretty good. I'll have to give you that. Johnson isn't the rival described in the letter, then. But what about Marlowe himself? Aren't there scholars who think Shakespeare was actually talking about Marlowe as his rival? Yes, well, those same scholars think Marlowe died in 1593. So when did he and Shakespeare have time to be actual rivals? <laughs> okay, well, maybe when Marlowe was writing Hero and Leander and Shakespeare was writing Venus and Adonis trying to outcompete him, you know, there were there are scholars who think Shakespeare read Hero and Leander and then tried to outdo Marlowe with Venus and Adonis. Maybe Marlowe was planning to dedicate his poem to Southampton. Well, that's a lot of maybes. Meanwhile, Shakespeare never had his work published under Marlowe's name. 
Marlo is like Spencer. You you get a couple of hits, a pair of metaphorical maybes, and then a miss by a mile. Chapman scores bullseyes on all five. I have to say, it sounds like Chapman is the most likely person. Remember, we said in the last episode that we had three hurdles to clear. You've cleared one. I'm betting the next hurdle will be more difficult for you. Of all the poems written by Chapman, and there were a lot of them, how can you be so sure that the poem your author is upset about is Hero and Leander? The same way I identified Chapman by showing exactly how and where Marlowe identifies Hero and Leander in his letter. Well, I'm going to hold you to that promise, Peter, in our next episode, as our time in this one has run out. Be sure to tune in next time when Peter and I will dig ever deeper into the mystery of Christopher Marlowe's disappearance in the penultimate episode of Hidden in Plain Sight. Those of you who want to jump ahead, you would do well to pick up a copy of Marlowe's Complaint, the book that reveals the rest of this incredible and fascinating story. You can check out Chapter 1 online for free. It's a fun read, and I highly recommend it, of course. But then I wrote it. <laughs>